You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. few weeks, we've been working through Paul's little letter to the Galatians, a letter that since it was first written has been challenging, or better said, has been refining our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And as we've experienced and seen for ourselves over the last few weeks, Paul's little letter to the Galatians is just as potent, just as relevant just as needed for us today as it was when it was first written. For as Paul makes abundantly clear in his letter, Christianity is not, is not, regardless of what you heard your entire life, maybe regardless of what your parents taught you, maybe regardless of what you learned in Sunday school, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, Christianity is not about a system of rules. It's not about laws. It's not about mandates. It's not about have-tos. Christianity is 100%. Christianity is completely about one person. And what that person has done for us and continues to do for us. Christianity is 100% about Jesus. And how As our Savior, Jesus has fixed our relationship with God and how as our Lord, as our King, Jesus continues to define what it means to live for God, what it means to trust God, what it means to be the people of God. Christianity is not about rules. It's not about mandates. It's not about have-tos. It's all about a person. Now here's the thing, if you're, if you're new to this or you haven't been with us for the last few weeks or you're just checking out this Christian thing, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't just take my word for it. Read Paul. Open up Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if you struggle with it, if you're still trying to be like, I don't really get this, go back and watch the last three weeks of sermons. In the last three weeks, I've tried with my very best ability to make Paul's letter understandable, make it show you it in a way that makes a little more sense so that you can fully understand and grasp the meaning of his letter. And here's what's going to happen if you do that. Odds are, like the rest of us, you're going to have a lot of, you're going to have a lot of questions. Paul's little letter is just incredibly thought-provoking It challenges a lot of things that we've been thinking about, but it also makes us question things. And I know this because over the last few weeks, I have literally never had so many good conversations about a passage of scripture. I've never had so many good conversations about a sermon series. We are digging in and trying to understand this, and it has been fantastic. And so if you are reading Galatians, you're like, I still don't get this. Please feel free to talk to me, talk to somebody else. That's what church is. It's a place where we come and process this thing together so we make sense of it. Now, what you're going to notice is there's probably three questions that you're going to end up asking yourselves. And I say that because these are the same three questions people continue to bring up, and they're great questions. The first question is this. It seems very simple, but I don't know if you ever thought about it, but the question is this. How exactly does the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago 
somehow affect my current standing with God. I don't know if you've ever stopped and actually questioned the mechanics of the whole process, but it's a bit odd. Some guy died 2,000 years ago, and now I'm right with God? In fact, all of the world is now able to be right with God if they simply by faith receive what he offers? It's a, it's a bold statement. How does that work? That's a good question. The second question is very similar to it. What is faith? What is faith? We, we said it's, you have to receive it through faith. We throw this word around all the time. What is faith? And then finally, the last question. As Paul says, we are free from the law. This is probably the most contentious thing that Paul says. And in fact, for, for hundreds of years after Paul wrote this, he had enemies trying to rip him apart for what he said. But if Paul says, as Paul says, we are free from the law, then what do we do with the law? Are we free then to entirely ignore it? Do we just chuck it? Like, what, what, what do we do with it? These are big questions. And, and frankly, they're really good questions. They're hugely fundamental. I don't even know if that's a phrase. English teacher? All right, she's AP, AP English, and she went like this. So I'm going to count it. <laughs> hugely appropriate. Okay? They're big questions, but here's the other interesting thing about these questions. Paul anticipated all of them. I don't know if you think about this, but Paul, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Paul has been preaching this message that he wrote in Galatians for about 14 years. Obviously, as he's preaching this message, people are asking the exact same questions. And so, as he sets out to write his argument, he actually anticipates them. And so in his letter, he touches on them. And so for that reason, for the next three weeks, we're going to take each of these questions and try to unpack them, try to understand what they mean. So next week, we're going to take the topic of faith. And we're going to say, what is faith? How do we understand it? And then we're going to contrast Paul's definition of faith with James's definition of faith. And if you're familiar with James, on the surface, it seems like him and Paul have issues. But they disagree on this. So we're going to talk about that. And then two weeks from now, we're going to tackle the big one. What do we do with the law? How do we see the law? What role does the law have? Do we chuck it? We're going to engage that. But today, we're going to ask the most fundamental question. And that is, why did Jesus have to die? How is it that one man, through his death on a cross 2,000 years ago, was able to make me right with God? I mean, this is, this is a huge fundamental question for Christians. It's kind of the thing we stake our faith upon. But how does that work? How does that make logical sense in any way, shape, or form? Well, we're going to unpack that today. And so to unpack it, we're going to read Paul's letter starting in chapter 3. And so I invite you, if you haven't already, to open up to Galatians chapter 3. It's on page 796 in your pew Bibles, but you can also pull it up on the app. And here's what's going to happen. In truth, to really understand Paul's letter, you need to read chapters 3, 4, and 5. That's kind of the bulk of the argument. But, dads, as a gift to you, I am not going to unpack all of chapters 3, 4, and 5 today. And so if it feels like I'm cutting the argument short, I am cutting the argument short. So you can go to lunch. You're welcome. But what we are going to do is we're going to take a small section of Paul's argument. And in fact, we're going to look at verses 6 through 14. And here's what's going to happen when we do that. You're going to see Paul say three things. Okay? First, 
Paul is going to tell us that there's two groups of people. The first group are people who are made right with God on the basis of faith and faith alone. Just as Abraham was made right with God on the basis of faith, so too are we made right with God on the basis of faith. And then there's a second group that argues that if you perfectly keep the law, then yes, you are perfectly right with God. But the problem is we all know nobody can actually perfectly keep the law. That's just absurd. That's ridiculous. None of us has ever done that. So either we're all doomed or we fall into the first category. And we say that the only way we can possibly be made right with God is through faith. But before we can deal with faith, like Abraham had, there is this giant barrier between us and Abraham called the law. And the law has to be dealt with before we're able to step into the faith that Abraham had. If you're confused, just wait until I read Paul's letter. Okay? Paul puts it this way, starting in verse 6. Paul says, So also Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For, on the other hand, all who rely on works of the law Well, they are under a curse. For as the end of Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified by God because as it says in Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. In fact, on the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them, not by faith. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So it is that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Church, this is the word of the Lord. As all of Galatians is, this is a little confusing. Okay? Here's the other thing. I don't know if you caught it, but there are like six Old Testament references in the seven or eight verses that we read. This is actually the densest section in the New Testament where somebody quotes the Old Testament. All that tells us is that Paul is really just reaching into a much larger argument that he's making by quoting these passages, and he's importing that into this. And so in order for us to really understand what Paul is saying, we have to dig into this broader argument that Paul is doing. So I know it sounds really confusing, but really this is what Paul said, okay? Just briefly. There's two groups of people. There are those who, like Abraham, are saved on the basis of faith. That's what Paul says in verse 9. But there are also those who are saved on the basis of their ability to perfectly keep the law. 
Is there any chance we could throw verses 9 and 10 up there? And notice, verse 10 really states that in the negative. Cursed is anyone who does not continue to do everything in the law. Well, the, the, the way to positively say that is, blessed is anyone who perfectly keeps the law. Paul is just saying the negative because, well, nobody's going to perfectly keep the law. There's these two groups of people. And if you don't keep the law, you're under the curse of the law. But as he says in verse 14, we do not need to fear the curse of the law because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has redeemed us from the law. This is his argument, okay? Another way of putting it, and I'm going to unpack this, so don't worry about it, is Paul, Abraham was originally saved by faith. That was the original way people were made right with God, was on the basis of faith, not by anything we did. But over time, this barrier existed between the faith of Abraham and his descendants, and this barrier was the law. And eventually, this law became a cycle that we could not break on our own. We were trapped in. We were under its curse. And we were doomed in it. But Jesus stepped in, broke the cycle, removed the curse, sets the law aside, and because the barrier has now been removed, we, like Abraham, are saved on the basis of faith alone. Everybody get that? It's dense. It's dense. I'm peeling an onion, and I'm going to circle it back and forth, but here's what's going to happen, okay? I think we can understand this if we look at three simple questions this morning. The first question is this, who's Abraham? I mean, Paul clearly makes a very big deal about this guy. We need to understand who Abraham is. Second question is, if Abraham was made right on the basis of the law, or the basis of faith without the law, then why was the law added at all? I mean, we, we, we need to answer that question. Why did God give us the law? And then finally, we'll be able to answer the big question. When we understand why the law was given, why Jesus had to die. Sound good? So that's our plan. We're going to look at who's Abraham, we're going to talk about why the law was given, and then we're going to understand why Jesus had to die. Now, first, we'll talk about Abraham. If you remember, the first time we meet Abraham is in Genesis chapter 12, where literally out of nowhere, God in his grace just decides to pluck Abraham out of all the people of the earth and make this ridiculous promise to him that through Abraham, he's going to become a great nation. So great a nation, in fact, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through this one man and his descendants. In fact, this is what we are told in Genesis chapter 12. This is from, this is just verse 1, chapter 12, out of nowhere, God calls to Abraham and says this. Abraham, I want you to go from your country. I want you to leave your people, your father's household, everything you've ever been comfortable with, and I want you to go to the land I will show you. And if you go, if you trust me, here's what's going to happen. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, you can bet I'm going to curse them. And through you, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is God's promise to Abraham. And so we're told in verse 4, Abraham goes, okay. 
And Abraham leaves everything he's ever been comfortable with and out of nowhere just follows God into the wilderness. Out of nowhere. It's, it's quite remarkable. But what happens over a period of time is Abraham realizes um, he's old and he doesn't have any kids. See, when God originally calls Abraham, he's actually 75 years old and he didn't have a kid at that point. And God says, I'm going to give you a ton of kids. Abraham over a few years goes, okay, I'm just getting older. I mean, talk about the clock ticking on a person, okay? He's 75 by this time. I don't know what he is, 80, 90? By this point, he's just getting older and going, where's my kid? And so he starts to freak out one day. He has a crisis, identity crisis. And he goes, God, if I die, if I die, all this wealth, all this good stuff I've accrued is just going to go to one of my servants, And God goes, don't worry about it. In fact, this is what God says. And Abraham said to God, this is in chapter 15. You have given me no children, so a servant of my household is going to be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This servant is not going to be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and your own blood will be your heir. He took him outside and then said, Abraham, I want you to look up. Look at the sky and count the stars. If you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And then it says this. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Look at that exchange. Before we put it down, just look at that exchange. What does God ask of Abraham? Nothing. Abraham's stressing, Abraham's freaking out. Where am I going to get a kid? I don't know what's going on. And God just goes, I'm going to give you a kid. Just, I'm going to give you a kid. I mean, I guess you could say God said go outside and count. But sure, if that's a burden to you. Okay? Go outside and count. Nothing. And yet, Abraham simply goes, okay. Again, he just trusts. He believes. He has faith that God is going to provide a kid, and that's it. And this significant verse here, verse 6, and, the Lord, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This, this is it. This is before the law. This is before circumcision. Abraham is made right with God on the basis of faith and faith alone. So Paul picks up this verse, as we read, and he goes, see how Abraham was made right with God on the basis of faith? So too... So too are we made right with God on the basis of faith. In fact, anybody who believes is really just a child of Abraham. All who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham. This isn't some new concept that you don't have to follow the law to be right with God. Abraham didn't follow the law and he was right with God. This is Paul's argument. So the next logical question is, okay, then why was the law given? It seems like this is such an easier way for God to just say, trust me. Why did it have to be so complicated with the law? Paul anticipates this question. And in fact, Galatians 3.19, as we have thrown up there, says it this way. Paul asks the question, well, then why was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. Now, this is an odd statement, right? It was added because of transgressions. What does this mean? Simply put, Paul is saying the law was given because we kept messing up. We kept hurting ourselves. 
Church, I, I just want you to think about this. If human history has taught us anything, it's that when humans are left to decide what is right and wrong, when humans decide what is good and what is evil, when humans decide how to live, all we do is create problems. All we do is hurt other people. All we do is hurt ourselves. All we do is leave a wake of suffering behind us. When you define what is good, when you define what is right, it doesn't work. See, here's the thing. We needed guardrails. We needed some kind of bumpers to keep us going the right way so that we didn't careen and crush our lives. God said, that's why I'm giving you the law to help you because of the transgressions. See, it wasn't enough for God to simply say, trust me. It wasn't enough for God to simply say, be my people. It wasn't enough. And you want to know how I know this? All you have to do is actually look at Abraham. See, I don't know if you're familiar with Genesis 15, but it's super short, like 10 verses. And all you have to do is then look into the beginning of Genesis 16. Within a matter of like four or five verses, after God promises Abraham, you're going to have a kid, Abraham decides to take matters into his own hands. He thinks he understands what it means to trust God, and he totally messes up the thing. Abraham thinks he gets what it is to trust God, and so instead he realizes God only promised he would have a kid of his own flesh and blood. He did not promise it was going to come through his wife. So Abraham and his wife get the bright idea that Abraham should really just sleep with his wife's servant. And as you can imagine, this creates a ridiculous amount of chaos. All this does is end up hurting his wife, hurting Abraham, hurting his own child, who he ends up having with her, and this servant woman. Everybody gets hurt by this decision. Abraham needed it spelled out what it meant to trust God to provide for him. He needed it explicitly said. And so, immediately following chapter 16, God gives circumcision. God tells Abraham, buckle up, buddy. Snip, snip. (laughs) Now, I have to be, I have to confess, uh, you don't use this tool in circumcision, okay? I bought this, number one, because I needed hedge clippers. Um, And then number two, because it's just so fun to watch you squirm. (laughs) But God told Abraham, after Abraham took matters into his own hands, to be circumcised. Now, you don't use this. Here's actually how you're circumcised, so get ready to squirm, okay? You would take a small little knife and you would cut off a flap of skin at the tip of the penis, okay? It's not as barbaric, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not as uh, awkward as it sounds. It's actually just this small little useless flap of skin. But here's, and you look at this and you go, why? This is, this is an incredibly odd law to give, right? And in fact, today, we still have debates about how barbaric this practice is. And it wasn't just in our day. In Abraham's day and age, this practice was looked at as very odd. Why would God give circumcision? Why would God give this command, this law? Well, think about it. In circumcision, God makes it very clear who's in charge of the progeny. 
God is trying to teach Abraham and his descendants that he is the one that will provide for them. They don't provide for their future. God provides for them. And so circumcision is a really effective tool for showing who's in charge of reproduction. That's why the law was given. It was given to help Abraham understand not to take matters into his own hands, but to trust God to provide for him. That's a big deal. But here's the thing, as we continue to follow Abraham's descendants, they continue to mess up. And so God has to give more laws, and more laws, and more laws. So after Israel is taken out of Egypt, remember this story? You know, with Prince of Egypt? Great one, great movie. After God takes them out of Egypt, he gives them the top ten, ten commandments, right? And he says, this is how you are to trust me. This is how you are to be my people. You're only supposed to have one God. You're not going to make any idols and I don't want you to kill each other. I don't want you to steal from each other. I don't want you to sleep with each other's spouses. Just, just stop. That's not of me. That's not how you trust me. The problem is, Israel, even after getting those ten, continues to mess up. Continues to not understand. Continues to find loopholes to the process. Do you remember the whole golden cow incident? Remember this? If you go back and look at it, they didn't actually believe they were breaking the law. They didn't believe it. They thought they were still obeying the law. They only had one golden cow. And this cow wasn't an idol. It was their God. And so God's like, how stupid are you people? He doesn't say that. This is me interpreting God. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? And so God gives more laws. And then they mess up again. So more laws and more laws and more laws. And by the time you get to Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, you have over 600 laws. 600 laws that simply spell out what it means to trust God and be his people. 600 laws that are truly summed up in one phrase. Trust me. Trust me. 600 laws summed up in one, but they didn't know how. So it had to be spelled out. Paul, at the very end of Galatians, I don't have it on the screen for you, Galatians chapter 3, says that the law was given as our guardian until Christ came. The law was given as our babysitter. The law was given as our minder, as the person who looked over us to tell us how to live until Jesus came. See, before Jesus came, we didn't know how to live. We really didn't know how to trust God. We didn't know how to be the people of God. But now that Jesus has come, Jesus clearly models for us what it means to trust God. Jesus is the clearest expression, the clearest picture of what it means to trust God. And so we no longer have to look to the law for how to live. We look to Jesus for how to live. We look to Jesus for how to love. We look for Jesus to how to treat other people. We look to Jesus to know what does it look like to engage God. We don't have to deal with the law. We deal with Jesus. We're under a higher authority now. So we no longer need to worry about the law because we have a much higher authority, a much clearer picture, a much better understanding of what it actually means to trust God, which was the sole purpose the law was given. We don't need the law anymore. Okay, so if we don't need the law anymore, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? I don't know if you've stopped to question this. I mean, this really is a good question. If we believe that he is simply the king, that he is the clearest picture of what it means to follow God, 
then why can't we just go, great, we have Jesus, I'm going to ignore the law, I'm just going to look to Jesus. Why did he have to die? It seems odd. But here's two very simple things that you need to understand. Number one, the law is not inherently bad. The law is actually quite good. The law reflects the heart of God. The law is not bad. We are just bad at keeping it. We're just really bad at obeying the law. And because we are bad at obeying the law, as Paul said in quoting the end of Deuteronomy, we are under a curse. We are under the curse of the law. And you go, well, what is the curse of the law? The curse of the law is when you break the law, when you do not remain faithful to God, when you rebel against God, then you are cut off from God. You are completely and totally separated from him. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? I know, we're just jumping back all the way into the Old Testament today. I'm testing all of your Sunday school knowledge. I know that. Remember the story of Adam and Eve, though? God creates this incredible garden, creates Adam, creates Eve, has this phenomenal relationship with him where he walks with them in the garden, they talk with him, they see him face to face, there's no separation at all. And then Adam and Eve rebel. They break the one law they were given. And the one law they were given was don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just trust me, you don't want to do that. The law was, again, trust me. And Abraham, or Adam and Eve go, yeah, we're going to eat the tree. We're going we're to do that. We're not going to trust you. And so the consequences of that is that Adam and Eve are cut off from God. They are kicked out of the garden. God can no longer come into their presence with them. And when they are cut off from God, they're also cut off from their source of life. And eventually, Adam and Eve wither and die. Adam and Eve get separated completely from God. And this is not how we were intended to live. You and I were not intended to be separate from God. And God knew this. This is how God designed us. We weren't wired for this. We can't do it. We rebel. We just break into all-out chaos. We need to be connected to God. But we're all a bunch of screw-ups, and so we're in this, this predicament. What do we do? Well, God, in his mercy and in his grace, gives us the sacrifice system. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about this, but the whole purpose of the sacrifice system was so that you could be made right with God. But the sacrifice system was really only a temporary measure. See, what would happen in the sacrifice system was this. Okay, you would mess up. You would go and you'd steal, you'd sleep with somebody's spouse, you'd, you know, whatever your thing is. Okay, you would do that. And then you would realize in reading the law that what you did was wrong. And you realize that this is just bringing you destruction and pain and heartache and it caused pain and dissension in your community. And so you decide, I need to make amends. And so you spend a ton of money to buy a perfect, flawless animal without blemish. It had to be spotless, this little lamb. And you would take this lamb and you'd take it to the priest. And in front of the priest, you and your family, your community, whoever you wanted, would touch this animal. And in touching this animal, you symbolically transferred your sins, your brokenness, your disease, your curse to the animal. You would confess over it. 
yeah, I, I slept with so-and-so's wife, I, I stole money from the church offering plate, I, I did this, that, or the other thing. You know, and you would just confess that before God. The priest then would take the animal and in front of your eyes would take it to the altar and while you're sitting there watching, would slaughter the animal in front of your eyes. Guys, this was incredibly horrific. It would have been disgusting. It would have been smelly. And in many respects, it was intended to be. Because the next time you thought about sleeping with somebody's wife, the next time you thought about stealing from the church offering plate, you're going to remember that animal. The screams, the blood, the smells, the horror before your eyes. And you're going to be like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing that again. It was an effective deterrent, but the problem was it was only a temporary measure. See, no animal could fully atone for the sins of humanity. They're separate species. It doesn't work that way. It was only temporary, and so every time you would then mess up again, you had to go and buy another animal and bring it back, and then you'd go and do it again. You're just stuck in this cycle, and you can never get out of it because we can never perfectly obey the law, and so we're trapped We're doomed to repeat it over and over. And so, as you read in the prophets, the prophets look forward to a time when God is going to fix this cycle, when God is going to break it, when God is going to provide the perfect sacrifice. Now, the prophets weren't explicitly clear on who this was or what this was or how it worked. Isaiah kind of gives us the best picture Isaiah 53 of this this servant who ends up taking the iniquity and the brokenness of humanity upon himself and somehow by his wounds we are healed. But even that, nobody fully understood what Isaiah was talking about. I doubt Isaiah knew what he was talking about. But what happens is this. Paul, as he reflects back on Jesus, goes, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. See, here's the thing. When God looked down and saw our brokenness, when God looked down and saw that we were stuck in this cycle and could do nothing for ourselves, God said, I'm going to take care of it. I am going to send my son fully fleshed as a full human and I'm going to have him live under the law and I'm going to say, as he lives perfectly under the law, I am going to make him the perfect sacrifice. And through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All of humanity will be fixed. There won't be a problem anymore. And you go, John, you're making this up. No, you don't have it, but if you still have your Bibles open, flip to Galatians chapter 4. Paul says this in verses 4 and 5 when he's summarizing part of his argument. When the set time had fully come, the set time, meaning when God deemed it best, just as the prophets foresaw that there would be a time when God did it, when the set time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, fully fleshed, under the law, to redeem those under the law, to free us from the law. Redemption. Okay, it's a slave term. We're breaking the chains of slavery here. To buy back, to purchase. So that we might receive adoption to sonship or daughtership. We, instead of being enslaved to the sin we, like Abraham, would truly be the people, the children of God once again. This is why God sent Jesus. And you go, well, how did Jesus do this? Flip back to Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 13. We'll throw it up. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Okay, this doesn't really help. This is all Paul says in Galatians, by the way. It's just this shorthand summary. Odds are, by the way, that this phrase was probably one of the early church creeds that was being passed around every Sunday. They would talk about this. And so that's why Paul doesn't elaborate. He goes, hey, remember the creed we've been referencing? Yeah, that explains what I'm talking about here. Well, we we miss out on that. In Corinthians, he actually puts it, I think, a little better. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And I know some of you are going, yeah, that did not help at all either. Thanks, John. You just got one confusing verse with another confusing verse. But essentially what's going on, if we can leave these up here for a little while, is what God is saying is this, is that Jesus, in coming into the world as a perfect, full-blooded human, then lived under the law just as we were under the law. The difference is, Jesus was never tainted by the law. Jesus never became cursed by the law because Jesus is the only person that ever actually perfectly kept the law. He's the only one that never messed up. Now how that works, that's a different sermon. But he never did. He was perfect. And because he was perfect, when he died, when he died, when he went to the cross, he went not because he had to die. Much like the animals of old, he goes willingly as an empty vessel, able to then stand and absorb the offerings or the sins of humanity. And so Jesus, as this empty vessel who is then killed, then is able to take our sins upon him. And in dying, Jesus fully satisfies the law. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, you have to die. If you sin, you are cut off from your life source. If you sin, you have to have some solution. God goes, you can't do the solution yourself. You couldn't do it. I'll do it for you. And so he sends his son into the world to do for you what you could not do for yourself. He dies on your behalf. And in dying on your behalf, he stands as the empty vessel. And so when we say we believe, we put our faith in, we trust Jesus, what we are saying is that we are transferring our sins upon him. Just as in the old sacrifice system where we laid our hands on the animal and that became this symbolic understanding of the curse for ourselves we see Jesus in the same way. And we transfer our sins onto him. And he is able to absorb all of humanity's sins because he is a fully fleshed human. All of our sins, past, present, and future through his death. But more than that, because he dies, he completely satisfies the requirements, the mandates of the law. The law started, you have to trust God. Well, you don't know how to trust God. You have to make it up with God. Jesus comes and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And because of that, the book of the law is satisfied. The book of the law is completed. Another way of putting it, this barrier that existed between us and Abraham is no longer there. 
Jesus has satisfied the barrier. He has removed the barrier. And so now we are free to enter into a relationship with God on the basis of faith and faith alone. That's what Jesus offered us, church. That's why he had to die. Does this make sense? Half of you? Yeah? (laughs) I'm serious. Like, here's the thing. We don't typically preach on this because it's dense. This is typically covered in like a Sunday school class or something where we can go into a lot deeper aspects of the theology. And there's a lot more here that I didn't really cover. So I know I kind of skipped over some stuff. And you're like, well, what about the... So if you have questions, by all means, please talk to me. I want to make sure we understand this. But that is essentially the gist of what's happened here. The law was a barrier. It wasn't a barrier that God intended us to have. But the problem is we didn't know how to trust him. And so he goes, okay, I got I to tell you how to do that. But the problem is every time you mess up, you break the law, you're under the curse, and we were doomed and we couldn't do anything about it. And nothing you can do could do it. So God said, I'll do it. And in the person of Jesus, he comes, satisfies the law through his death as the perfect atoning sacrifices. All the sins of humanity are covered and we are now able to enter into a relationship with God on the basis of faith and faith alone. We don't need the law. Another way of thinking about it is this. We don't have to look to the law to how to live. Jesus has said, I got a workaround. You don't have to go back through the law. If you want to, Paul even will say, you have to perfectly keep the law. Or you can look at the one who perfectly kept the law. And instead of worrying about the law, you just look to him and go, I just trust him. I just follow him. And he defines now how I am to live. I don't need the law to define how I am to live. I don't need the law to define what it means to trust God. I just follow God. I trust God. End of story. We're under a higher authority, church. So stop going back and being obsessed with this addiction to the law. It doesn't lead us anywhere, church. It just hurts us. Why are you going to do this? All this does is lead you to guilt. All this does is lead you to brokenness. All this does is lead you to feelings of inadequacy. Why are you continuing to think you're your own savior? We don't do this. Embrace what Jesus offers you. Embrace the workaround. Embrace the free gift of grace he showers on you. This is the faith we declare. In fact, is this not the faith we declare in this meal every time we come to it? I mean, think about this. Every single time we come to this meal, we say the words that Jesus told us. We speak to each other these very simple words. When we take the bread and we break it, we say what? Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat of it. And then when he takes the cup, we say, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Church, where in this do we then say, and also you need to follow the law? think about this. This is a beautiful symbol that Jesus has given us where he invites us to come freely, empty-handed. You literally stand there like this and someone hands you the bread and the only effort you have to do is then dip it into the right cup. Okay? You are passive in the process and you simply come to receive his gift of grace. Why do you think you can add to his gift? 
Just take it. That's the faith we cling to.